Welcome, everybody, to the Fine Flow Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McDermott. And today we have Travis Green with us. And Travis is with Microfocus. And uh, he's a senior product manager for the ITOM suite. So welcome, Travis, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sean. Uh, my role is basically to communicate the solutions that Microfocus has in the IT operations management space. And we cover a pretty broad set of solutions there. So IT service management, AI ops, cloud management, and a set of governance tools to ensure that you're compliant with your patch policies and maintaining cost controls around the spin within IT operations management. Awesome. And, and you, I mean, you got a lot, so you, you've been a microfocus for 17 years, you told me, um, mm -hmm. through acquisition, which seems like that's, if you're in the IT business, you've been through many, many acquisitions. Um, so give us a little bit of history about like your role there, how it's changed over years. And then obviously over the last 17 years, you've seen a lot of new products coming in and how microfocus is building their portfolio. Sure. I mean, look, in the software space, everybody's, um, you know, either acquiring or been acquired at some point, if you've been around long enough. Uh, I started with NetIQ, uh, so blast from the past with the app manager. That was after uh, a career in the Navy, so I was a, a naval officer for a while. But um, after I joined NetIQ, uh, we were acquired by a company called Attachmate, who then went on to acquire other entities like Novell. Um, and uh, several several other companies as well. Then Microfocus acquired Attachmate and started bringing in more of the uh, operational management products, some security products, uh, application development products, and that culminated in the in the um, acquisition of HP Software. Um, and so H HP effectively split into three parts, hardware, software, and services. Services became DXC, software became uh, the microfocus components that we'll be discussing today. And then the uh, hardware business continues to run independently. Gotcha. So you so you're with NetIQ, right? So you've been in this operation space for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was so uh, actually in a, in between the Navy and my days with NetIQ, I was in IT operations. I, I uh, ran a couple of data centers, uh, and in the process of trying to improve our operational management capabilities, we uh, were looking for a partner um, and found a, an MSP that would help us with that. And they recommended implementing NetIQ, and then through that relationship, I eventually moved over to the software. Uh, side of that, which, which awesome. We uh, we actually, as a consulting company, we used to do a fair amount of work with NetIQ back in the day. Uh, so so your so your focus now is on IT, ITOM, right? So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and I know you and I have had some conversations on um, observability versus AI ops, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But where uh, where do you see your customers? Uh, so you're out there, you know really kind of gathering information around the market and what, what customers are looking for. What do you think are some of the top things on customers' minds today when it comes to IT operations management? Well, first of all, what is IT operations management? I mean, there's uh, there's some vendors out there who want to position ITOM as just the 
uh, call it, you know, what happens in the knock and stays in the knock. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all about monitoring and now observability and AI ops and now uh, turning that into the, the response arm of, of ITOM. Now we, we look at ITOM broader. We, we sort of adhere to the Gartner definition of ITOM, which would include a lot of the things that I mentioned earlier. So IT service management's included, but you know, you can, you can split that off. I would say in, so, and, and there's the other parts too, but I would say the two big components there are IT service management and this AI ops component as they exist today. And then there's this emerging cloud management. What do we do with that? Uh, what's, how do we interact with site reliability engineers, that sort of thing. In the, go, going back to the IT service management for a bit though, I think that element is dominated by a desire to improve the user experience. We see um, a lot of companies that have invested in service desk products that are maybe smaller um, companies that have grown and their maturity needs have grown along with it and looking for uh, something that's a little more advanced in IT service management than just basic ticketing and being able to um, mature their processes around change management and incident management, especially as cloud comes into that and sort of breaks all of the, the old paradigms around ITIL. And I'm, a, I'm actually ITIL V4 expert certified, but, you know, ITIL um, had some, I, I think, challenges with dealing with agile methodologies. And so that's where you wind up with a situation where, you know, you maybe tried to implement too strict of a change management and, you know, a lot of focus on the on the service desk and kind of took our eyes off the ball of how do we really support our businesses to drive revenue and maintain the, the quality of service that's necessary to, to keep those customers. So I think that in the ITSM space, it's really about that user experience, both for your employees and to the company. That's That's been a bit of a change. Um, I mentioned site reliability engineering and how that impacts what we're doing to manage the cloud and cost management is probably the big focus there um, because you have developers using infrastructure as code and able to deploy pretty much anything they want to whenever they want to and without guardrails can uh, wind up with a lot of surprise mm -hmm. billing um, that is, is dominating discussions, especially as we think about the macroeconomic conditions happening today. Um, and then in the, the ITOM side, if you want to call it that, the operational response side, it's all about AI. How does AI ops impact that? How do we achieve observability and, and sort of the differences between Yeah, I agree. We've, we, I mean, here at Windward, we view ITOM in a much more holistic definition like you do, right? And certainly there's companies out there that actually have products called ITOM, right? And that can be confusing, right, to customers when you come in and talk about ITOM. They're like, well, I'm, I'm associating ITOM with this product that we are also looking at. But to, to us, you know, operations management encompasses everything you said, you know, the, the customer response, the infrastructure operations management, cloud management, cost management, it's all, all part of that. And so I'm, 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 uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> so, um, and, and I know. Well, and there's this, Sorry to interrupt, but there's this like thing like does ITOM only mean on prem? Like what? Like all this cloud stuff has emerged so quickly that a lot of uh, traditional ITOM organizations find themselves wondering where do I fit into all? Yeah, that? I think you bring up a really good point here, right? And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, right? And 
when you when you kind of think about operations management and the mission of that, right? Is it, it you know, if I try to boil it down, like if I'm standing in the elevator talking to somebody, right, and they say, "What do you do?" I said, "Well, we really help customers with X." To me, it's all about service reliability, right? And that's a pretty that's a pretty broad thing when you start looking at okay, well, what does it mean, right, to start focusing on service reliability? Because you've got all, the, and I think, we're, I think we're going through a shift right now that we're seeing with our customers. I'd love to hear your perspective on this because what we're seeing from our customers, and, I, and it makes sense because operations always lags engineering, right? People like to build stuff and throw them out, throw it out into the, into the ether and see what happens. Then operations is kind of coming along later. But one of the conversations that we're having a lot around our customers is this move to the cloud, right? And, and the idea of the traditional knock is kind of going away. And we've talked about it for a number of years, but we're starting to see it, it actually happening now where operations organizations are saying, you know, my primary customer is not the knock anymore, right? It's not a bunch of people sitting in a room behind screens. It's providing data to the application teams because if they're operating under a DevOps methodology, the reality is they've been doing a lot of dev with a little O, but not the full ops. Now they're, they're demanding more observability data. They're demanding more insights into their applications that they can program and, and support. And the idea of, of a traditional knock is just kind of dissipating. Are you seeing that too? Yeah, I would concur with that. I mean, here's so the the interesting thing is that the developers and the DevOps teams, um, you know, cloud has been a great democratization for them. And this has been going on for 10, 15 years now. This is not necessarily new, but I think what's new is that a lot of organizations now have finally moved to a place where it's cloud first, maybe cloud only. Uh, and I, the, the data center's days may be numbered in a lot of organizations. Although last I heard, there's still about 60 to 70% of workloads are on in private data centers still, but uh, definitely the trend is going there and it's going and it's accelerating. Um, and so what we see is the, the developers who thought, you know, well, AWS or Azure, Google Cloud, they're going to take care of the infrastructure for me. I don't have to think about it. Suddenly you're realizing that, well, wait a second, um, there is management responsibility to, to maintain this quality of service. So whether that's uh, ma managing the cost, managing the patches, managing the backups, uh, making sure that, that we have uh, enough architecture resilience there. So when, uh, you know, somebody at AWS takes a whole region down for a change, which happened in Virginia what, uh, two, three years ago, um, that, that we, I, I've got this thing architectured in a way that's going to be resilient for the, the needs and the cost balance that I have there. Those are all core operational skills that really don't go away just because you've shifted a workload from, your own data center to someone else's, which is what the cloud is. Um, and these developers all realize that they don't like being alerted at three o'clock in the morning when something's gone wrong. Um, and you don't want your, what is effectively tier three or your, your core developers having to respond to what are known errors or, or simple sort of responses. And that's, that's work that the knock would typically take on, but then you bring into 
the tooling now, the ability to, to apply AI and automation to a lot of these known errors. And you start thinking to yourself, well, is there a role or what is the role for a tier one support? Or do we even need tier two support? We have tier one and then we go straight to tier three. That, that's, that's where a lot of the discussion I see happening right now is how do we economize that the cloud does have benefits. Uh, it does reduce some of that workload of managing networks because those are internal to the cloud providers, although you're going to have networks on your side, but it, it's, it's a smaller footprint. And then, of course, all of the fulfillment and operational concerns for a lot of the hardware is, is taken away. But there are still operational roles to be had. And then how do we how do we continue that in, in those sorts of environments? But in yeah, a more I think you're way? right. And and, uh, you know, I, I, th I we're seeing an acceleration to the cloud. But the reality is, is that on prems never going to disappear. Right. As long as we have people working in buildings. Right. Just for the most simple example, you still need a Wi-Fi infrastructure, network infrastructure to get connectivity into your cloud applications and that needs to be secured and things like that because those are all, you know, endpoints. So there's all, there's still, but I think you're absolutely right because this is, you know, back in you know early 2000s when I started Real Ops and we talked about this earlier, the, the, um, the idea for us really kind of the vision was can we automate away tier one operations, right? Level one operations and just, and mm. get rid of all that superfluous noise. That's kind of happening now by, you know, really just naturally in moving to the cloud because a lot of things that a traditional knock was dealing with, especially like, let's talk about networking, right? And network issues and stuff like that now kind of goes away um, as you move to, you know, um, you know, software-based networking and things like that. But you still have all that manageability, right? It's, they're providing you the capability, but you still have to configure it. You have to configure it to the context of your business. You have to configure it to the context of your applications that you're building. Therefore, there's always going to be a manageability. And I 100% agree with you, it's just shifting. Yeah, what's interesting is, um... I think you see it in the concept of how do you handle a, a major outage. Um, so if you, um, uh, some of the airlines have had issues. Let's, let's use that as an example where uh, there, uh, there was one notorious situation where uh, the fuel loading app that was developed to allow flight crews to decide just how much fuel they were going to load onto an airplane because, you know, you don't want to fly with a lot of extra fuel because it's extra weight, that's extra cost, that sort of thing. So it's it's a great app, helps, them, helps the airline become more efficient, but now they've become dependent upon that app because without it, they can't fly. They can't, in, unless they can figure out how much fuel to put on the plane with safety margins and all those sorts of things and the weight of the plane and how many passengers they have, all that sort of input, uh, they, they're grounded. And so, you know, you, you have outages at, for, that affects tens of thousands of people suddenly, um, and you know the, all of their lives being disrupted. Whether they're trying to visit family or get to a business meeting, and, and uh, all because maybe a change was implemented incorrectly, or uh, may, it may have been something in the code that you know we 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 tried uh, deploying on a Friday is the the infamous. Uh, 
concern that everybody has, or we wind up uh, having a network issue or security issue, whatever it may be. And and the, the skill sets for finding those problems quickly have been born through the battle scars of war rooms and and network operations centers and having having good observability across the entire environment and understanding where uh, the problems might really lie. Um, those, those aren't necessarily skill sets that developers have had the same amount of time learning how to build. Uh, and so it's, they're, they're, whether, again, whether the workload's in the cloud or, or on-prem um, or a combination of both, uh, there's still a set of skill sets that are needed to try to reduce the impact of, of those major yeah, incidents. Yeah, exactly. So, so you guys, uh, uh, you know, skill sets and then skill sets need tools, right? But you guys have a pretty big arsenal of tools, right? Because you've acquired so much. So we've, in the time since the HPE acquisition, which was back in 2017, uh, what we've done is we've re-architected the tools to be all containerized initially. Uh, because the the implementation time for these tools in many cases were, was just too too long and too difficult, um, and then because of the containerization strategy, we were able to take that and create SaaS offerings um, because now it's easy enough for us to deploy them to uh, clouds of our choice, and in some cases the clouds of our customers' choices. Um, while we do run uh, a lot of our software as a service from AWS, uh, occasionally we'll have a customer who will ask us to run it from Google Cloud or Azure because they have a preference for one of those and we're, we have the flexibility to do that. So that, that's been one key thing for us. But in the process of containerizing and uh, breaking these products down into more of a, a microservices approach, what it's allowed us to do is have a unified approach to things like identity management. So if you if you have more than one product, you can log into single sign-on sort of thing. You can get across the products. We've combined a lot of the user interfaces. So uh, if you learn how one product works, it's going to translate over into the other. So that's helpful from uh, a usability perspective for our customers. We have one CMDB that supports the discovery of everything that our customers have, whether in the cloud or on-premises, networks, all of the above. Uh, one ultimately single source of truth. Gartner doesn't like that term. <laughs> They'll tell me that, no, 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 it's got to be federated. We do a pretty good job with discovery, and that's our pushback on that one. But uh, we'll also federate as well. So if you have other sources or repositories of configurations we can we can pull that in too so but we do believe that having one place to go to to manage change from to do your troubleshooting around incidents um, to be able to provide fulfillment services uh, on requests for whether it's developers or, or business users is a really important capability and one that we've invested a lot into uh, we have one approach to automation you mentioned it earlier through um, you know, the, the tools that came from Opsware. So we call it operations orchestration today, but it uh, integrates, of course, with all of our portfolios, but hundreds of other third-party tools and as a way for us to, to extend automation into the environments our customers have. Because a lot of our customers have a, a huge mix of tools. And I, I doubt you'd find anybody that has the old approach of having just you know, one vendor in a framework sort of a, uh, approach where they uh, in, in only use a single source vendor for their monitoring needs, for their 
configuration needs and fulfillment needs and so forth. Uh, there's those days are gone. Everybody's trying to has moved to a kind of a best of breed approach. Although I think that the pendulum's swinging on that one again, where it's back to an IT platform approach. So we everything I just described is what we encapsulate as our optic platform, um, which is an acronym stands for operations platform for transformation, intelligence and cloud. We've got a built-in intelligence AI component to that, uh, which also is centralized. You don't have to license it separately or install it separately. Um, and ultimately our, our customers, whether they choose to buy network management from us or uh, some of the, the application performance management or configuration and uh, IT service management, all, all of these sort of things that we offer, we'll find that uh, there's one source of configuration, of, of collecting monitoring data, of um, being able to then integrate that with third parties. And our data source um, that we use, one of, one of the components is called the Optic Data Lake, is uh, completely transparent and open. So our, that's probably something that is unique to, the, to our approach is we don't lock it down. We don't keep uh, our customers from reusing that data in other places. So a lot of our customers will take that data and put it into BI tools like Tableau or um, you know, Microsoft's uh, product. Uh, those are the two most popular ones. But this, those sort of data reporting tools sometimes are used. And of course, we have our own um, reporting capabilities. Uh, we call them business value dashboards that we offer yeah, as well guys, if, if customers prefer. Pretty large suite, you know. So, um, all right, so let's kind of shift the conversation, and, and we'll wrap it up on this. But I think this will this will actually be a fun little conversation. So, you know, before the before we actually start recording, you and I had I asked you a question. Where do you do you see uh, observability and AI ops as the same thing? So I will ask that question again, and uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, I'd say my thinking on this has evolved, um, and we we debate this internally. I know there's a raging debate amongst analysts and and the the other vendors in this space. Uh, so I don't I don't know that anybody can definitively say here's what the answer is. I, I think everybody's got a little different flavor on it. I mean, I'll give you my perspective on well, it. Well, your, your and, perspective uh, is the only one that matters. I'd, on I'd love right to now. hear yours too. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, so. We think that observability is the end goal. Um, what you're trying to accomplish is an ability to understand what went wrong when, when a, a problem is impacting your end users or ideally proactively address it before it impacts the end users. Um, and so that, that uh, observability objective is one that needs a number of building block components um, yes, there's core monitoring. You've got to be able to collect data and logs um, and, and the information that you have on configurations and things of that nature. You need to understand the relationships between the CIs, uh, have that topology built out so that if the, if the service at the top end is down, you can understand how the events that are feeding into that might help you to troubleshoot faster. Um, but that's mon monitoring and configuration are, are supporting elements of AI ops. AI ops is how you get to a place where there is observability for your environment. So it, observability is more of a destination than a uh, than a stepping stone to something else. Uh, yeah, is, that's is interesting. Because kind of the, um, the way the way we see it, right, or the way I see it is. Kind of going back to my original point around service reliability, right? And 
there's a lot of components that you need to do that. And to me, um, observability is one kind of the major pillars of service reliability. And you know, one of the other major pillars is automation, right? And because in order to to build an, a very robust service reliability, uh, and, and there's a lot of tenets of site reliability engineering, right, on this, of to be a, you know, you've got to be able to, um, you've got to be able to create an environment in which you can react to to the alerts, the things coming on, because it's just getting too complex. AI ops, you know, one thing I talk a lot about with AI ops is that, you know, I view AI ops as a strategy, not necessarily a platform. And um, the reason I say that is because going back to your original comment, right, ITOM is pretty big. If you look at AI ops and you just define ops as, you know, you know, IT operations, which I do, right? That's the that's the connection I make. Then you're really talking about AI across a lot of these other pillars, right? So AI in relation to observability, AI in relation to um, automation, and it's going to play in all those different areas. Um, and that's where I kind of get, you know, a, a little bit frustrated when you see a lot of companies just kind of pitching their AI ops platform. Um, and I understand, and, and maybe a great product, maybe a great platform, but it's confusing to the market, right? It's confusing to our customers because they're like, am I buying AI ops? Am I implementing AI ops? Am I buying observability? So it's, it's, um, it's a very confusing time out there. I think there's just a lot of jargon being thrown out. And that's one of the things we see with a lot of our customers are just confused by the, the magnitude of information and how different people are presenting it. And like you said, you have debates about it internally, and we have debates with analysts, and you have debates, and there's, there's debates going on in the market, whether they're active debates or passive of just how one company presents it and another company presents it. So, you know, I see it as a part of our job is to help our customers, you know, navigate through all that. Yeah, I get that. Like as vendors, I think we're uh, we're not helping the situation any because we're <laughs> we're introducing the terminology. Uh, my favorite analyst in the space, uh, and he's got an open blog. You don't have to subscribe to uh, Forrester's services, but you can read his blog. His name's Carlos Casanova, uh, and he's he's the writing that he does on this topic is 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 fantastic. So if you just Google. Carlos Casanova Forrester, the first hit you'll get is probably his blog. Um, and I, I, I've learned a lot from him, um, and I think he's probably doing some of the best research and, and thought leadership in this space right now. But one of the things he talks about is that there's a lot, there's a lack of trust in AI. So you, you talked about the AI and AI ops, um, and there's a lot of claims about, you know, what the AI can do. Uh, and what we've taken his feedback to heart and in, in the, the work that we've done with him to say, okay, we're going to expose what the AI is doing. So whether it's automated event correlation or it's anomaly detection, which are kind of the, the two key components to AI in the context of, of AI ops, um, we, we've tried to expose as much of what the, what the correlation rules that, that were being applied or the correlation algorithms that have, have come into play are actually doing and giving our customers an opportunity to train the AI so that it's, if, if you know, so it, 
if on occasion one, the, the correlation turns out to not be ideal for that situation, you can tell the AI to knock it off and don't do that again, but you can also um, tell it when it's doing a good job and it'll continue to, to do that. So there's, while it's learning on its own, uh, especially with the uh, ability to, to see things that are abnormal conditions, you don't want to give it every situation. You do want to have, our customers at least, and, and Carlos would agree, are asking for the ability to, to see what's actually happening and then some ability to train the AI so it doesn't feel like such a black box and there's more trust built into uh, Yeah, I think uh, that's, the, a, the that's a great point. And we, I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest hindrance to widespread automation is trust, right? Because it's just hard. It's hard to basically put yourself into a situation where you're going to allow something to automatically do something, especially against production apps. I mean, going back to that fuel app, right? And, you know, you, you, you know, some automation goes, mm -hmm. do, goes and does something that brings it down, right? And then you, then you've backed up, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of passengers across the United States. Um, that's, that's, that's career killing, you know, when that happens. Um, and, you know, we yeah. have to do, I think everyone has to do a better job of, of being more transparent about what's happening and, and helping everyone kind of understand and, and building that trust. And I, I, I think that's a great point. So on that note, I think that's, I think we'll end on that note. So I appreciate you, uh, you coming on the podcast and it was great meeting you and hearing a little bit of history about Microfocus and what you guys are doing there. I obviously know a lot of pieces because I've been in the space a long time, but uh, it's interesting to see how it's all come together from a Microfocus strategy. Yeah, thanks for having well, us on, Sean. Take care, everybody, Appreciate and we will see you next week.